Right. Good morning. Hey, good morning. It's good to see you. Go ahead and make yourselves comfortable. And again, welcome to Legacy Church. We are a church plant to Knoxville. We are very excited about this city. And welcome no matter how we find you. I know we might have skeptics in the room. Um, we might have those who are just looking, um, searching, not just for churches, but for what God is going to do in their life. And when we have some partners and some committed people in here. And welcome to all of you. It's good to have you here. Um, turn in your Bibles, if you brought one with you or an app that you use, to Proverbs 2. We are going to finish a quick two-part series we started in. It's just a quick in and out on how to make decisions. Um, and Proverbs 2 is going to lift a lot of the weight for us today and seeing Christ more clearly and the gospel more clearly. And while you're turning there, I don't know if you guys have any memories of your toddler years. Some people do, some people don't, right? I think I have a couple memories of my toddler years because I'm super old right now, but I'll tell you, my hardest decisions back then were whether to eat my food on the tray or play with my food first and then eat it. That was a hard decision back then, right? But as you get a little bit older, like your tween years, I was talking to my kids about this this morning, the hardest decision you have is what kind of emoji to put inside of a text message so that the recipient doesn't think you're upset with them. That's hard decisions at that age, right? I do remember hard decisions whenever I was in high school, whether or not to take my first paycheck and spend it on gas for my car or go to the buckle. Hard decision, right? Whenever you get into your young 20s, you start getting, uh, I guess, married, uh, new kids, new career, it, it gets a little bit more difficult. What am I gonna be in this world? What city are we gonna live in, right? Um, how are we going to raise our kids? Whenever you get into the middle of your life, it, it, it kind of matures. You see the harder decisions getting a little bit more difficult to make. It's like, how am I going to invest my money to make sure that I can survive later on in life? And how am I going to raise my kids, my teenage kids, who would rather spend their paycheck on clothes than they would gas in the car? You see, the older we get, hard decisions don't get any easier. We're not really playing with our food anymore, are we? We have hard decisions, and all of you walked in here with difficult decisions even to make today. They get notably harder. In fact, so hard, we would beg and ask for anything to make a decision for us, right? Sometimes we ask time to make a decision for us. If I just wait long enough and I don't decide what to do right now, then maybe the decision will make itself. And we know that does work a lot of times, right? Sometimes decisions do make themselves. It doesn't always work out for us. Sometimes we ask others to make decisions for us because they're too hard for us to make. What would you do if you were in my shoes? We ask questions like that, right? What would you do? Tell me. Tell me what to do. Sometimes we beg and hope that our gut tells us what to do, and we're going to talk a little bit about that today, okay, because I know our culture prizes it. Oftentimes it can be a very stupid thing for us to do because forget logic, forget the Bible, forget common sense. I feel like I need to do this. My gut is telling me what to do. Sometimes we just ask God to make our decisions for us. Open this door, close this door, make the, the fleece wet, make the fleece dry, paint a sign, give me a sign, do a miracle, something, anything. Tell me what to do. Hard decisions are hard simply because we are fearful of not choosing the right thing. By, by choosing to go right, that means that you are not going left, and that is what makes us scared the part of not going left. We feel like we might be losing something. We saw last week that even the Latin behind the word decide means to cut out or to cut off. If you decide to jig, you are not jagging. 
And that's where the fear comes. By not going this way, I think I'm losing something. I could be screwing up in this decision. Add to this fear of making a wrong decision, some of us kind of become entranced with a bad theology that we pick up. Sometimes we have no idea where we pick it up. A theology that says if you make bad decisions, it will remove you from God's perfect will. And like rats in a maze, we think that there's only one way to get through this thing called life in order to get to the cheese on the end, where God is really happy with us. So last week we saw our heart's tendency to not trust God with his big will, his plan, his providence as it rolls out, that he's in charge, that he is strong, that nothing's going to slip by him. We don't trust that makes it difficult for us. We see God as a little bit wimpier. Maybe his hands aren't so strong. And on top of seeing God as kind of wimpy, I think sometimes we could see him as kind of sneaky, holding things from us, expecting us to make right decisions at all times, except not really telling us what decision to make. For that information, we have to unlock and kind of decode God's perfect will for our life. And that's very difficult. So in our mind, our sneaky God cloaks his will from us, yet he expects us to follow it perfectly. And we saw last week how unbiblical that really is. Last week, we also saw that to follow God's perfect plan and will for our life, it means very simply to pursue Jesus, to pursue Jesus, his face, his righteousness, his kingdom, his presence, his everything. To pursue Jesus is God's will for your life. But when it comes to non-ethical and non-moral decisions, now, when I say that, let me just qualify it for those of you who weren't here last week. An ethical decision is should I move in with my girlfriend? That's ethical. Should I steal from work? No one will ever notice the money going. That's, that's a moral decision. But in non-ethical decisions, like what city to live in, who to marry, what church to go to, those are non-moral, non-ethical decisions. And when it comes to those, we pursue Jesus with every fiber and atom of our being, and then we just do what we want. We choose what we want, and I know that sounds very human-centered, and we're going to get into that in a minute, but even when you make the wrong decision or you risk something and it seemingly spirals out of control, it's important for you to know that God is providentially involved even in your newly made mess. You see, we spoke a little bit about providence last week, but I didn't explain it. Okay, I wanted to wait today to do that. Providence is a very beautiful characteristic of what God, I guess, guides in our life. You see, some people will use God's providence and his sovereignty interchangeably. We have a sovereign God and we have a providential God, but those don't mean the same thing. They're very different functions. God is sovereign, which means he rules and he reigns. He has power. He has authority over everything. He knows everything. He's sovereign. Providence is a function of his sovereignty. Providence is his guiding and governing hand of all actions, all man, all moment, towards his goal and towards his glory. So a way I've always kept this clear in my head, and I don't know how like, theologically accurate this is. I'm sure someone could come up with a better example. But whenever I think about God's sovereignty, I think about a king's staff. Boom. Just majestic in the hand of an all-powerful king. And when I think about his providence, I think of God with a shepherd's staff, governing, guiding. Both are beautiful parts of who God is. So if we were to apply this to our everyday today, because some of you are wondering, that's great theology. I don't know how it kind of trickles down to who I am today. If we were to apply today, it means that you are where you are today by your best decisions. And you are where you are today by your worst decisions. Congratulations. You are here. 
but, and you have not exceeded God's guidance in God's hand. Both are true. It's no mistake that you are where you are. It's no mistake that you're here today. It's not. God's been guiding you. He's been active. Providence is as real as the air we breathe. In fact, I would submit that it's more real than the air we breathe because providence has existed before God even made the air that we breathe. Both God is steering your life and you are steering your own life. Both are true. This is hard to imagine with our limited minds, isn't it? There is this very helpful passage for me. I'm not the smartest guy in the room. So I need passages like this to return to, to kind of help me remember how this all works. Genesis 50-20 is one of the most helpful ones. Just commit it to your memory. I mean, it's both even numbers, 50-20. Genesis 50-20. Go ahead and put it up on the screen if you can. Now, this is a beautiful part of the narrative in Genesis. If you're not familiar with this, this is the story, the end of the story, rather, of Joseph, a young man who was sold into slavery by his turd brothers, right? Hated him. They wanted to kill him. They changed their mind. They said, we'll just make some cash off of him. They sell him to some traveling gypsies, and off he goes. Years pass by, many years. He's grown up. God was providential in his life. And they find themselves hungry, doomed, and guilty, begging for food from their brother. They don't know it's his brother because I'm sure he's put on a little pounds. You know what I'm saying? He's got Egyptian makeup on. You put enough makeup on somebody, you can't spot who they are, right? That's what's going on here. So the revelation comes. They see this is Joseph. And he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, selling me to gypsies. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Super cool. This is what he's saying. Translation, you guys tried to hurt me. And you're guilty for that. (laughs) You're responsible for that sin. God is going to hold you responsible. That's on you. But God did it too. God did it too. He guided me. He put me here. He's the architect of all of this. It's interesting, isn't it? If you've been around for very long, you know that whenever I touch an Old Testament text, it's irresistible for me. I have to chase it to Jesus. This is a softball because no doubt Jesus uttered the same sentiment as he perished on the cross. When he yells, it is finished, he's saying that your work for righteousness is finished. It's finished. God meant that for good. Even though our hands put him on the cross, God put him on the cross. Jesus is a more brilliant Joseph. Not that his IQ is higher than Joseph, but it is more of a result of God's brilliance. He's a fuller Joseph. Because Joseph just swept people that were in poverty, in famine, into a place of plenty, but he did it from the comfort of a throne. But Jesus is a better Joseph because he left the throne. And he came here, not to give us food, but to be our food. For those who are in a spiritual famine, doomed, and guilty. We are worse than his brothers. Not just selling our brother to a bunch of gypsies, but murdering him with our own hands. We, as a church, people, we're guilty. We're responsible for our own sins. You're responsible for your own errors, and yes, when you make bad decisions, it's on you. We're even responsible for putting Jesus Christ on the cross. That is on us. That is true. Yet, Yet, capital Y, God did it as well. God himself is the architect of the gospel, the good news. 
God steered that moment, and yet we're complicit at the same time. We saw this last week a little bit in Acts 4. And just to paraphrase what that is without going back to that passage, I want you to stay where you're at. Acts 4 is a young church praying to God. And basically what they're saying is, is God, look, Herod, Pilate, Gentiles, all kinds of people put Jesus on the cross by your plan and your predestiny, by your hand. Even they understood that both had happened. Isaiah 53 even says, it is the will of God that Jesus was crushed on the cross. Yet we have the blood on our hands. Do you see how this works? To apply it even more deeply today, whatever plot of land you hold in life, the agony, the wreckage, the joy, the high fives, the wins, the losses, the kids, the bills, the scars, all of that is by virtue of the fact that you have made that bad decisions or good decisions and others around you have done that for you, but God has guided and governed and he is there at all times. This is providence. This is providence. So you can breathe freely today knowing that it is because of mankind's biggest blunder our worst decision-making skills at work that puts a king on a cross? That's what we did. Yet, at the same time, it is God's greatest masterpiece for you and for me. Justice crushed Jesus. Grace finds you. And to even put some more depth and texture to this, if we can, even if you leave here today after a sermon like this and you start making bad decisions left and right, and it doesn't take long for us to do, right? But I'm talking like bad decisions, head-scratching decisions, where you just mumble something under your breath because you know you just hit a foul ball. Even when you do that, you cannot outrun God's good decision for you. Grace is not revoked. Your cruddy and selfish decisions don't cancel his valiant one. Why? Because he's providential. He's full of grace, and the gospel is good. So if we were to take this and apply it to decision-making today, today when we make decisions, we don't trust providence. We don't trust that God is in control. We don't trust that his will will always move on and never be tumped over or stopped or slowed down or frustrated. We don't really trust that. And what we do is we think that in our bad decisions, God just leaves us. He leaves us. Did you make a bad decision? Well, you're on your own. Good luck with that. Or, or God is trying to make lemonade out of the lemons that we just gave him, right? Like he's looking down and seeing what we just did, the decision we just made. And it, and we, we think that he's up there saying, oh, gosh, come on. I mean, there's like 10 things you could have done, and you chose that one? Well, you're going to have to give me a minute because I'm going to have to sit and think about what we can do to get you out of this jam, yet another jam. I'll do the best I can. I'll be getting back to you. Like, that's our God. That is not our God. We fear that we may leave God's perfect will and ruin his perfect plan. This is unbiblical. It denies providence. It's unbiblical. But because of this, we start placing a very heavy weight on non-ethical and non-moral decisions. We, in fact, become very overly preoccupied with them, thinking that making a wrong decision is more than just making a wrong decision. It's leaving the will of God. And then we just kind of become suffocated, cloaked in some sort of an anxiety as we just sit in indecision. Hard decisions, they require hard work 
in you, in me, all of us, we want to avoid this hard work. And one way we do this, and I nuanced it last week, but I wanted to spend more time on it this week. Often what we will do when we collide with a very difficult decision is we will do the very typical Christian thing and we will push away and say, well, I'm going to wait upon the Lord for a while. Right? Now, waiting upon the Lord could be a good thing. If it means I'm going to resource the scriptures, if it means I'm going to get some counsel around me, if it means I'd like to spend some time praying and letting it all kind of just drop through the filter and process it, then that's good. But I'm afraid whenever I bump into people, it's actually code. I'm going to wait upon the Lord becomes code for I'm going to wait and hopefully God makes the decision for me. And if I find he's not doing that, then I'm going to go with my gut. I'm going to tell everybody that what happened in my gut was really the Holy Spirit and then no one can argue with it. A lot of times that's what waiting on the Lord means. I feel led to do this because my feelings are telling me this is right. And my feelings must be the Holy Spirit so you can't disagree with me. And it's true. Oftentimes, God does use his spirit in our lives to, to swerve us, to bring our attention to some things. Or, or you might even hear people use the phrase, I had a check in my spirit. Everyone heard that? Well, I just had a check in my spirit. That's, that's a very real phenomenon. I had a pause. I saw a little flare go up in the sky. Something stopped me a little bit and caused me to look with more intention. Those are very real things. The Holy Spirit does that. But many times, I would submit most times, we don't get that guidance when it comes to non-ethical decisions. We don't. We don't. Kevin DeYoung in his book, Just Do Something, he says maybe we're even wrong to expect God to make our decisions for us in that manner. You see, when your hearts lean on how you feel, you could be making the decision of doing what is just greedy or cowardly or some other feeling that you have because that's how our feelings are. Our feelings aren't always pure, and you can't always rely on them 100% of the time. This is why we see in Jeremiah 17, 9, God speaks through Jeremiah and saying, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Translation, very simple. What your feelings tell you, oftentimes it's upside down, and it's dishonest. It's kind of dumb to listen to it all the time, even your own heart. Our culture says, go with your gut all the time. What do you feel like doing? And I get that. It's not wise all the time, friends. It's just not wise. The Bible speaks to us on that level. God has given us brains. He's invited us to take risks against what our guts tell us often. There is a better way to do this. There is a sanctified common sense. There is a way to make decisions where you feel good after them and can sleep at night. I think Proverbs 2 is, is the biggest help for us here. This is a very, very beautiful piece of scripture, so we're just going to read the first few verses, okay? It'll be up on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you. This is the word of the Lord, Proverbs 2. My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth, and, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom from the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice. 
and equity every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you. This is the thesis. We should pursue wisdom. The whole chapter of Proverbs 2 is about making wise decisions. And wisdom is not the same thing as information, by the way. Information comes and is bound up in artifacts of knowledge, but wisdom is bound up in the heart of God. And I think I can say without much argument that we live in an age today where information is more available than it's ever been before, right? I mean, I was listening to the sermons that were preached from this stage when I was out of town, working out of town, and I listened through um, Mason's preaching, and Mason's a fantastic preacher, but I got to disagree with him. Hoosiers was not the best movie made in the 80s, right? It's the Karate Kid. We all know that. Come on. The original Karate Kid. So I decided to let Google decide who was right or who was wrong. And I typed this in, literally. Which is better, Hoosiers or Karate Kid? And in the time it takes you to blink your eye, I got 158,000 results. Information. It's very available. Which is better, Comcast or WOW? 905,000 results. Which college should I go to? 427 million results. Who should I marry? Almost 7 million results. How should I invest my money? 99 million results. How do I play Pokemon Go? 27 million results. Information is right at your fingertips, right? What is interesting is as much as information availability has climbed, wisdom has not. They're not congruent. In fact, I would submit, and maybe not get any disagreement on this as well, I'd say wisdom has declined. It has declined. In Proverbs 2, I see something beautiful. I see three main pillars of what it means to gain wisdom. Now, typically when you see a triad of things, people usually do good at one or two, and they, they struggle in a third. Okay, so when we go through these, I want you to consider how you make decisions in the past, currently, I would like for you to consider where you struggle in being wise in your decision-making, all right? The first pillar we have, and it'll be up on the screen, pillar of wisdom, is to treasure and commit to God's transforming word. That's what we see in Proverbs 2. Treasure and commit to God's transforming word. We see that in the first verse. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Now, this Bible that I'm holding, it will not tell you, it will not tell you how to decide or what to decide on. It will change the decider. It changes the one making the decisions. It does something even better. So Hebrews 4.12, which is a passage we, we typically run through, right? We have a pretty fast clip when we read a passage like this. But if you slow it down, you see the beauty of how this interprets and changes the decider. Hebrews 4.12 says, for the word of God is living and active. Pause. That means it's contemporary. It's animate. It's resolute on things today. Transgender issues, shootings, Black Lives Matters, whether you should carry a gun or not, the Bible is animate and it is contemporary. It is not antiquated and outdated. It goes on to say, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. That's English. What that means right there is it distinguishes the indistinguishable. It takes what you and I have a hard time seeing where it starts or stops, and the Bible knows perfectly, <laughs> like soul and spirit. I took gross anatomy in school as pre-med guy, so I, I dissected cadavers and animals and all kinds of stuff. It's very difficult to tell where a muscle stops and a tendon starts. 
or where a ligament ends and a bone begins. It can be difficult sometimes. And what is difficult for you and I to distinguish, the Bible says, no problem. I know where that stops and this starts. Then this is my favorite part of Hebrews 4.12. In discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, it reads you. It forces you to be honest with yourself. It digs and probes on the motives and the fears and the inside of the insides. So when we approach the word of God, especially with decisions, the best posture you can take is one of surrender. Because we don't stand atop this, it's above us. It judges us, it interprets us. And the second best posture is one of receptivity. I will take whatever you give me. I will apply whatever you say. So I, I, an example, I have a devotional progression I go through every day. And just one part of it is, is before I even open up the Bible to read the passage, because I read the Bible just like you guys do. It's not all sermon prep, right? So whenever I read the Bible, before I even crack it open, I pen out a quick sentence or two in a journal to slow me down and to collect my thoughts. And I ask God to help me surrender and to help me be receptive. It sounds a little bit like, Lord, I'm distracted and I'm tempted to come to this word and judge what it tells me. I need to surrender. Give me a heart of surrender as I read today. Lord, I also need to see what your Holy Spirit has to illuminate today. Help me see what applies to me and to those around me today because I'm hungry and this word is not common. It's not a book that's just common. It will make you wise by changing you, not the decisions around you. It will make you wise by changing you, not necessarily the decisions around you. In other words, this book is not going to tell you what job to take or whether or not you should adopt or whether to talk to your loud neighbor or what to give your money to. It's not going to do that. I'll tell you what it will do, though. It will plumb the depths of your heart and tell you why you are scared to make those decisions. It will do that. It will reveal where your flesh is going sideways. It'll do that, too. It'll show you where you're trying to be God and where I'm trying to be God and seeking out our own comfort and our own security and our own glory. It will do those things. It will approach the person reading it and change the person reading it. It is not a crystal ball. It is a transforming word. The more you commit to it, the wiser you will become. The more you commit and store this away, the wiser you will become. The less, the more unwise you will become. The Bible calls that a fool. And when you memorize the scripture, it makes you quicker with wisdom. You don't need six days to think about something because you've committed something to heart. Kevin DeYoung says in his book that I just mentioned earlier that apart from the Spirit through scripture, God does not promise to use any means for guidance, nor should we expect him to. That's a hard statement, right? Because I know what some of you were thinking, same thing I thought when I read that. What about the book of Acts, smart guy? I mean, the Holy Spirit's doing all kinds of mysterious things, all sorts of mystical things and miraculous things to guide them. And what about me? I've had God do some mysterious, miraculous, mystical things in my life to guide me. All of that's true, but we have to admit that in the book of Acts, that's not normal for those guys, even Paul and Peter. It was not normal for them, and it's not normal for you either if you're honest with yourself. None of you waited for a prophet to decide what used car to drive off the dealership. Right? No one, no one chanted before God and waited upon the Lord to see what they would put on today. Right? 
We make normal, basic, non-ethical decisions all the time. And in Paul's case, we see him most often using logic when making wise decisions. Consider this passage in Acts 20. For Paul had decided to sail past, he had decided, Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So he's thinking, okay, Ephesians, I'd like to be with the Ephesians. They're really cool. I miss those elders. The food is good. I could either stop there and camp out for a while, or I could blast right on through and go to Jerusalem, because I'd like to get there on time, too. What to do, what to do, what to do. He's not begging God to send an angel or to make a fleece wet so he knows what to do. And you also see other times where Paul or Peter or even Luke says, it seemed good to us. It seemed good to us. They're using logic and sanctified common sense. These were non-ethical, non-moral decisions. Extraordinary means were not sought. They might have come, but they were not sought. Waiting on special revelation to make very basic, non-ethical, and non-moral decisions will get you in a jam. And it is not how God expects us all to make our non-moral and non-ethical decisions. I think when it comes down to it, we just don't like to trust this, to, to do any kind of work like that. We know, I think we all know that this has answers for us and it will change us. But that's like long term. Like I'm in a pinch right now. I need decisions made now. I need God to speak to me now and tell me what to do. Here's the truth. I think some of you are having a hard time making decisions right now, big and small. I think the best thing you can do is pick this up, open it up, and let it disciple and change your heart. Best thing you can do. Another pillar of wisdom is to turn your ear to wisdom by trusting those around you with wise guidance and similar values. Okay, I do have something to say on this. The third pillar I'm not going to spend very much time on, but this one I do. Verse 2 says, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart towards understanding. Proverbs speaks to this. Let me give you a caution. Caution on entrusting your proverbial fork in the road, whatever that is, to just anybody. It will get you in a jam. Be very careful. Be very careful the guidance you collect around yourself. The reason you want to be careful is because your value system is different than just the world's. The world makes decisions based on different pillars and values than what a person of God does, right? And the best kind of decision-making always sticks close to your values. I've read countless books on leadership development, both worldly and those in the kingdom, project management, um, executive decision-making. I've read a lot of this stuff. And when you get to the sections on making decisions, they all kind of say somewhat of the same thing. Even the pros who don't love Jesus say this. They say, stick close to your values. Stick close to your values. A lot of times they make decisions for you. I I think that's wise. I know as a church, Legacy, we've had a lot of good things come at us that we've needed to make decisions on. And what we will do is we will take it and stack it next to our values, which you can find online. We use the same rubric everyone else does. And we look, does this line up with our values? Does it jeopardize our values? Does it enhance our values? And we've pushed away from some really good things. We've pushed away from some things that just did not fall within our, well, what we think is valuable. I just made an announcement last week pushing away from a building project that we spent 18 months on. And it's because it had shifted and moved and evolved to such a place that when we stacked it next to our values, not only were we having a harder time seeing it fit within, it was jeopardizing the very values that we held close. Values helped us make that decision. 
Let me break it down even more. You're in a legal disagreement with another, another Christian. If you were to go to a lawyer that does not love Jesus, they will tell you how to win that case and probably a little bit of money. But if you meet with a lawyer who loves Jesus, they will probably remind you that you should not be taking another brother or sister in the Lord to court, especially before the world, and you should appeal to the pastors or other Christians to help adjudicate the matter. Different values. You see how it matters? If you struggle with online purity, don't go asking the bros at Gold's Gym's locker room what they think about it, right? Different values. You know, even if you have trouble deciding whether drinking wine or beer is okay with you, you can ask somebody at work, and their standards might be whatever it takes to keep it between the dotted lines on the road is good. But if you ask somebody that knows you, that has the same values of you, they might tell you one beer is too much or one glass of wine is too much because they know it's medication to you and it's wrong for you even if you don't get drunk, right? Values matter. And I'm not just saying that only Christians can give good guidance here. Sometimes, oftentimes, God gives common grace, even to people who don't love Jesus, have good counsel. If you met with a financial planner that does not love Jesus, they will still have a heavy emphasis on saving, investing, saving, investing. We, we find the same thing in the Bible. It's similar. Similar values could be helpful. The punchline is this. Don't make hard decisions alone in your own head. It's stupid. It's stupid. With only your own voice speaking, it's unwise. Proverbs 1.5, let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. Proverbs 12.15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 15.22, without counsel plans fail, but with many advisors they succeed. Proverbs 19.20, listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. To live a life where you think that you don't need other people speaking into your decisions or you don't need community involved is to live a life where you're basically your own God above need of anything. We all need a varied perspective of wise people around us who love Jesus and understand us. I think some of you are struggling with hard decisions today and the best thing you could do is make a dang friend and ask what they think. I mean, haven't you ever seen someone in public that was just dressed funky odd socks with sandals and like a half shirt on and you think in your head that brother needed a friend this morning <laughs> you know <laughs> they needed a friend this morning even this morning it's so funny I was telling my wife I was preaching on this I was about to walk out the door with my kids and she saw me she saw how I was dressed and she goes whoa 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 you're changing it church right no 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 this is it no it's not it that is not it. I had like black pants, black shirt, black. I looked like Steven Seagal, you know? I was all blacked out. I didn't have clearance to leave the house. I needed someone to help me. <laughs> no one thinks they're that person. We all think we're perfectly dressed. We're just like that person, just walking around Kroger with the half shirt on. We don't think we need someone else's perspective. But we do. We do. And if I could give you one strong word of guidance and coaching here, find some trusted and heavy voices that you could kind of clean the air filter in front of. What I mean is this. Pull the air filter out like you would in a vehicle and just shake it out all over the table. Let them see everything. 
Don't just relay the facts of the decision. This is what we do when we try to recruit people into our decision-making and our problems. We will say, hey, listen, I'm just curious if you could tell me what you would do. Here's my problem. These are my options. These are my resources. Help me. What would you do? Well, you just described the predicament. It would be even better if you described what's going on underneath. This is what my flesh is doing when I'm trying to make this decision. When I approach this decision, I feel a piece of me get real angry, or I could kind of see the coward's way out, and I'm tempted to do that. That's cleaning the air filter. So that they don't just see the decision, but they see why it's hard for you. Because haven't you ever had someone come up to you, and they're like, hey, listen, I've got this hard decision. I don't even know what to do. It's so crazy. And whenever they're done telling you the decision, you're like, that's not that hard, man. That makes itself. I mean, are you serious? That's hard for you? That's because they're struggling with this, not with this. Right? Another word of caution. So many words of caution. You know, I wrote most of this down on a plane ride, and all I could find was a barf bag in the seat in front of me, and I almost preached off the barf bag because these are the things that make me sick, you know? <laughs> but another word of caution. Just because you prayed about it doesn't mean your decision isn't above criticism. It's not above criticism just because you prayed about it. One thing I see as an example is someone saying, I prayed for a closed door and God didn't close the door. What that means is, is I asked God to close the door, but I want this thing so bad that the only way I'm not going to get it is if God jumps in front of me and just blows it up. It's going to take God to stop my role. That's what's really going on. And when God doesn't close the door, we interpret that as a go-ahead. And so Whenever someone says, I asked God to close this door, and he didn't, so I just did it anyway, therefore, God employed this for me, and therefore, you can't disagree with it, because I've prayed, I prayed for it. I've prayed for it. Listen, recruit community to speak into your life and recruit them to join you in prayer. Ask good questions, not just what would you do, but do you see anything unhealthy in me as I make this decision? That's good decision-making, and that's wise. That's wise. Our last pillar of wisdom, very quickly. Call out in prayer for insight and wisdom. Very basic. All of this has been basic. Verse 3. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding. James is very cool here whenever he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Turns out, if you ask Jesus for what he already wants to give you, he'll just give it to you. You're already praying for something he's very excited to give you. We see it again in 1 John 5. And this is the confidence that we have toward them, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. It's beautiful, really. Begging God for wisdom means he will drive you to the word. We've seen that. Begging God for wisdom means he will drive you into community. We've seen that. Begging God for wisdom means he's going to make you be honest. He'll make you be honest as you sit and you think and you ruminate on that, of where your heart is. I've got a really good friend that's going through a hard decision right now. And I mean an earth-shattering decision, one that will change his life forever regardless of what he does, regardless of which direction he goes. And this is a guy that he's pretty unflappable. I mean, he doesn't sweat much. You know what I'm saying? But I'm finding him on the edge of discomfort with this decision because it's heavy. But I find myself on the edge of my seat because I'm being led so well by watching him make this decision. He's been a bit of a hero to me. 
and in our back and forth, both on the phone and on email, I happened to see an excerpt of a prayer that he was praying to God as he was making this decision. I asked him for permission to read it over you. He said, sure. This is what it says. It'll be up on the screen as well. Father, I want to grow in trusting you. Through the knowledge of your son, Jesus Christ, I've been granted everything I need to be faithful to you. You have given me your promises, and through them, I become a partaker in the divine nature. I pray to look a little more like your son from this, to participate in his perspective, to be like him in attitude, dependence upon you, and love for people. You see, he's asking for his heart to change. You have given me your word, which contains all I need to make an appropriate decision. I do not think you will answer every single question I may have as I work through this, but there is enough revelation on your character and your will to make an informed decision and be obedient. You have given me your spirit to teach and instruct me from your word and to understand your truths. You have given me your people through the local church to pray for me and offer insight to any blind spots I may have. And God, you have given yourself as the greatest gift of the gospel, you, the triune God, in all your glory, have redeemed me to you that I might walk with you. The Father who chose me before the foundation of the world with you, Jesus, the Son, the perfect revelation of God, who died on the cross to atone for my sins, with you, the Spirit, who quickened and made alive my dead heart and sealed me as a guarantee of the inheritance to come. My God, I want to know you in this. Please sustain me when I doubt. Please humble me as I learn and grow. Please lead me in confident and expectant prayer till you act. Please be counsel through your people. And please give me a heart that longs for the eternal day when you return and consummate your kingdom. Please awaken a yearning for the time when sin is no more and Jesus rules as the king upon a redeemed earth. And please give me the grace to work as unto you until that day comes. Boom. The first time I read that, I could not quit crying. I just couldn't quit crying. I've been going back to it and back to it for weeks now, rereading it. Who does that with emails? But I'm just rereading it, rereading it, because it's leading me. Because who makes decisions like this? It's not how I want to make decisions. God, just open a door. Close a door. Tell me what to do. That's how I want to make decisions. I don't want God to change the, the decider. I just want the pain to go away. It's beautiful. We want to make hard decisions in an easy way. But we don't usually regard prayer in the alteration of us. Let me just ask you about your decisions today. Because you all walked in here with them already. Where do you need God to change you? You know, the main time I learn about who I really am is when I'm in the middle of a bone-crushing decision. Boy, that's when you really see who you are, isn't it? Where the cowardice is, where the fear is, where the greed and the hunger, the pouting, the everything. You really see a good picture of yourself. Where do you see your flesh drifting sideways? And where are you more concerned for a good outcome than you are God's growth in your own life? Consider those questions. Because after you've read the word and stacked up and committed yourself to scripture, and after you've bounced it around the people around you, and after you've prayed and called out for wisdom, then choose what you want. 
Decide what you want to do. Go ahead. Read, pray, commit, confess, die to self, and then just decide. Just choose something. If you want to adopt kids, adopt kids. If you want to marry someone and they look like Jesus and they'll help you look like Jesus, marry them. If you love God and pursue Jesus with every fiber and atom of your being and you want that car, get that car. Make a decision. Because God already knows what you'll decide. Because he's providential. And all of that falls within his providence. But you will also be responsible for that decision. So what this means is you are free to decide and you are free to fail. And God will be there. And he will be active. Your failed, non-moral decisions are not going to revoke his kindness and his grace from you. When you fail, God is there, moving, cheering, loving, active, right on time, not freaking out, not frustrated. Go ahead and stand with me as we're going to close this out. I've gone longer than I like to go. I would like to say this as you're standing. Some of you are here, and there is one single big decision that is on your shoulders, and that is just to choose life today. Choose life, which is the core of wisdom, to become a Christian, to become a son or a daughter of the king. God entered your madness, and he beckons you to enter his kingdom. And I think a lot of you entered today, and you find yourself a little less like Joseph and a little bit more like Joseph's brothers, doomed, hungry, needy and guilty. But you have a king that sits on a throne, but he went through a cross to get there. And that cross was for you to give you what you don't deserve and to not give you what you do deserve. To love you totally despite you. This is a big decision. Listen, don't be stupid. Choose life. Don't be stupid. Don't be a fool. Choose life. Choose life. Father, we thank you for this day and we thank you for this moment where I approach your word with so many questions. I had questions when I woke up this morning. I'm sure a lot of them will be there tomorrow. And God, to be, to be honest, before you and before these people, I just don't want to make the decisions. I'm scared that it'll hurt when I make the wrong one. But God, I know that as I, as I read this prayer, that you have given me everything I need in this book. You've shown me all the limits of your love through the gospel. You've planted me in a church with great, wise guidance. And you've given me a heart of prayer where I could call out for insight. And then, if I'm wrong, if I'm wrong, you're there. Not making lemonade out of lemons, but there, right on time, right on step, not out of control. Lord, we love you so much. And as we worship, and as we take communion, whenever we feel like taking communion during this time, and whenever we write checks, and whenever we pray with our family, whenever we do these things as a church, Father, make our hearts lean towards a dialogue with you concerning the hard decisions that we have, asking ourselves why we don't want to be changed. We just want you to change what's around us. You are so good and so sweet and so gentle. I still am mystified by how carefully you handle us. We love you, Jesus. 
You are so very good to us, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.